Well, I listened to you today for five hours because I wanted oh to really God. into oh it. God. <laughs> oh, my God. Go take a nice warm bath. I can't believe you subjected yourself to that. <laughs> Not at all. It, I have a pretty short Welcome to a new year of Access Ideas, where we share insights and perspectives that spark curiosity, conversation, and inspiration. I'm Yana, and thank you for supporting the podcast. Remember, if a specific episode or idea resonates with you, we'd love to hear about it via our social media channels. Today, I'm speaking with the host and producer of Alpaca My Bags, a podcast that takes a closer look at what truly makes travel and tourism responsible. Erin Hines and Katie Lohr chat with me about evolving ideas on sustainable travel and tourism, as well as the ethics of traveling with an escapist mindset. We also talk about whether a tourist is any different than a traveler, the problems with over-tourism, and our experiences traveling to our ancestral countries. If you like this episode, check out the Alpaca My Bags podcast for more great content examining dark tourism, sustainable travel, volunteerism, travel privilege, and what it means to travel authentically. And now, on to our destination. Erin and Katie, welcome to Access Ideas. Hey, Anna. Thanks for having us. We're really excited to be here and chat with you. Ditto. It's so great to be here. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast was I listened to your your thoughts on what does it mean to be a responsible tourist? And what I really liked was the balance between some of the topics that I don't know a lot about, such as fallen tourism and dark tourism. But some of the things that I've certainly thought about and I've tried to do, but I always feel like I'm failing. And as I listened to some of the episodes, I thought, Am I really ever going to be the ideal traveler or tourist? So maybe we can start by the first question, which is talking about your philosophy of what responsible travel is, maybe how it's evolving or changing through your podcast topics and conversations. Let me just start by saying I don't think there is an ideal tourist. I don't think any of us are perfect. And the fact that you're even thinking about this is a really good start. That's where we're at as well. Like, that's what our podcast is about, just like talking about responsible tourism and just trying to be conscious of it, because then it sort of naturally just factors into the way that you approach travel. But yeah, like given that, I would say to me, responsible tourism is mainly a mindset. It's just about decentering yourself in travel and being conscious of how your travel impacts people and the planet. So yeah. You're quite experienced as a traveler based on your blog and what I've what I've listened to, right? Yes. So, I'm an addict. <laughs> <laughs> Did you always know that you were going to be someone who is a lifelong traveler? Or the first few times you traveled, did it feel uncomfortable to you? Did it feel uncomfortable? No. It definitely was pushed a lot of boundaries the first time I went. I was quite old when I traveled abroad for the first time. Like my parents didn't travel with me as a child. They just didn't have the budget for it. So I'd never been on a plane. So the first time I got on a plane was to the Netherlands to see family there. And my mom like brought me to the airport and put me on the plane and I went by myself. So yeah, that was my first experience. But I will say like even that first time I was just completely sucked in. And I think from that moment I knew 
I never want to stop doing this, like going and seeing new places. And so, yeah, I've just continued to. I've just really made it like part of my life. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely want to point people to your blog because I think some of the photos and topics are quite relatable. And some of the suggestions that you give are so accessible and and easy to, to read about, easy to follow. So how about you, Katie? Have you been somebody who always dreamed of traveling more and and that's something that you want more of in your life? Totally want more of it in my life for sure. Um, But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm as much of an addict as Aaron is, but I did grow up with a lot of travel in my life. My parents sort of had planned a trip of some sort every couple of years for the family and I'm an only child. So um, it was much more accessible than Aaron's family. She's got a couple of siblings. So my parents would just sort of like throw me in a backpack and take me around the world. Um, every few years. So I went to Greece and Italy oh. and Switzerland when I was two years old. And I I think the biggest trip that made an impact on me was my trip to Greece. I was about 10 and I was obsessed with ancient Greece at the time. And so I was just living in this dream world of seeing everything that I had read about in person and was sketching at the time and was just having such an amazing time. And I knew I would always want to keep having these travel experiences. So As I grew up, I actually traveled less because then all the funding was down to me to support those trips. And I pursued a career kind of first and foremost. So uh, travel hasn't been so much of a thing for me, but now it has been because I have a partner who hasn't traveled much. He hasn't gone anywhere outside of North America. Um, So we went to Portugal for the first time this year and he had the best time. So I think he's got the travel bug. And so we're planning many more trips for the future. It's very, very exciting. Oh, Portugal is beautiful. That is definitely yeah. something that would give me the travel bug, too. I remember going there. <laughs> but I didn't grow up traveling a lot. I had four siblings, and our travels were basically limited to the provincial parks in southwestern Ontario because I'm from London, Ontario. Yeah, or I know that going, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> on the occasional road trip up towards Montreal to visit family members. So when I was in high school, I got a job specifically the purpose of saving up for a trip to Ireland to visit my pen pal because I had this pen pal back in the olden days when people still sent letters before email. And it was super exciting. And it was also a bit unnerving because it was the first time traveling on a plane and I was alone and I was technically, you know, underage. But (laughs) it was definitely something that sparked curiosity in me and it made me want to travel so much more. So I never had really thought about travel as something that was for me. You know, I used to look at tourism brochures in the tourism business in the local mall and think, oh, one day I'm going to go there. And, (laughs) you know, as it's become more accessible to me, I've also started thinking more about what it means to travel and travel as a commodity, tourism as a commodity. It's become so much more packaged and accessible in a way because people can easily purchase travel opportunities and go to destinations without many barriers. Although I think, as a side note, I really want to highlight your discussions on your podcast about accessible travel for people who have physical disabilities, because I think that's a really important topic that isn't discussed a whole lot. But actually, Erin has a pretty serious allergy to peanuts that she's talked about. And this is something that makes it tricky for her to travel and I think this isn't a small thing. I'm imagining quite a few listeners could relate to this. Erin, you've talked about this a little bit on the podcast. You've blogged about it. 
Maybe you want to highlight what it's like to be traveling with severe allergies to something that is so common and something that maybe interrupts the spontaneity of just going to eat wherever you like. Yeah, I'll start by saying I'm not the only person in this digital room with severe food allergies. Katie has them too. (laughs) We are peanut allergy buddies. We are. (laughs) You're united. (laughs) So Katie understands this life of no nuts. Um, Yeah, it's definitely something that like impacts my experience of travel in quite a big way. I would say like it's a source of a lot of anxiety when I travel. And it factors into a lot of the decisions I make when I travel and how I travel. So for example, food like just isn't really part of my travel experience. I know it is for a lot of people, but for me, it's too dangerous to risk eating foods unless I know exactly what's in them. And so the culinary experience of travel is something that I've not gotten to experience very much, depending on the destination. Um, Some regions of the world are a little safer than others. But a big barrier that I find when I travel is allergies like this are quite common in North America, but they aren't common in other regions of the world. And so it can be really hard to communicate to people the actual severity of my allergy. Um, Some people might just assume I don't like them and they don't understand that like a small trace, like the tiniest, barely visible trace of a peanut protein can put me in the hospital and be life-threatening. And so, yeah, it's it's funny because I never used to talk very much about this because it just growing up, it was just my life. Like, I didn't really think about what life would be like without it because it was just my reality. Um, it's only in recent years that like people have really asked me about how it impacts the way that I travel. And I would say, yeah, the biggest things are that I don't eat very much when I travel. I cook for myself as much as possible. I'm also known to just go to markets and eat like raw veggies the entire (laughs) trip. I truly sustained myself on bananas the entire time I was in Southeast Asia. Um, Yeah, and it's kind of funny when my partner and I travel together because he's a foodie. He wants to try everything. And so people find it funny because like we'll go to a restaurant and he'll order tons of food and eat and I'll sit there and eat nothing just to go back to our hotel room and eat like a banana and a raw carrot for dinner. (laughs) But he lets me smell everything. So I get to enjoy the smells. Well, there's that. (laughs) Yeah. But I was just thinking if you travel with Katie, it must be nice to have somebody who's looking out for your same interests that you Mm. can you can both be looking for places that are potentially a little less risky as Mm -hmm. far as peanut free. Have you had that experience and felt kind of liberated by it because you're both in it together? We've only traveled together in Ontario. I think we got to test the limits and go abroad because I find like here in Canada, I feel pretty secure. Um, It's really when I go abroad that I, that the anxiety really sets in. (laughs) Yeah. So we should test that actually, Katie, because it I know we still haven't traveled together and it's been like four (laughs) years of making this podcast and we still haven't done it. (laughs) But also mind you, two of those years were no travel. In lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'd love to hear an episode, though, where you both give your take on an experience. And then certainly you can relate to the the peanut-free experience as well, but that would be fun. Yes. I want to talk a little bit about popular ideas and distinctions between tourist and traveler. So certainly when I was younger, I really avoided being seen as a tourist. I would do everything I could to dress and appear slightly local, even if I didn't succeed in that endeavor. 
And now I've kind of embraced that, you know what, I am a tourist and I'm never going to fit in with the locals. And that's okay as long as I'm behaving responsibly. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about those terms and do they matter? And if they do, then why, why do they matter? Why do we need to make a, a distinction? Katie, do you want to start? I mean, you're a travel blogger. I feel like you know this so well. And then I can add on to your thoughts. Okay, I'll give my spiel because this is a really good question. Yeah, you've got a spiel. I see people arguing about this quite a lot. There's a lot of people who very proudly claim that they are a traveler and not a tourist. So I actually looked up how these two words are defined by Merriam-Webster, the dictionary. And the book defines a tourist as one that makes a tour for pleasure or culture. And a traveler is defined as one that goes on a trip or journey. And I think these definitions are interesting because, like, when you read them, you notice there's not that much of a distinction between the two. Um, And I think this is interesting because I would argue that there isn't really. I think what happens is people use these words to try to evoke, like, a specific image of a person who travels. It's not really about, like, the definition or the act itself. It's It's about like the mode of travel. So like you were saying, Yana, a traveler is more off the beaten path, doesn't really look like a tourist, whereas a tourist is wandering around with a guidebook in their hands. But yeah, I've kind of come to the same conclusion as you at the end of the day. If you're making a trip to a place that is not familiar to you, not your home, you are traveling, you are a tourist. And I don't know, I've sort of run out of patience for the idea that like we can never not be a tourist because we are and that's just something we should accept. I think we can travel in ways that are better but at the end of the day you still are a tourist. So I don't really know that distinguishing between these words matters that much. I think in my brain I always sort of have associated a tourist as someone who stays on the quote-unquote tourist trail and kind of hits all the big bucket list locations in the country and is really there for those. But realistically, a traveler who is not from that country, like you said, Aaron, is still contributing to a tourism economy. So in that sense, they are still technically a tourist, even if they are wearing what seems like local clothes and outfits and maybe don't necessarily look like a tourist. They're still part of that economy. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's a good way of looking at it and maybe embracing our tourism selves is kind of a way of humbling ourselves and saying, you know what, we are outsiders and it's okay. I mean, we're we're coming with good intentions. But that leads me to another question, which I think about maybe too much, which is, is traveling with an escape mindset problematic? Should travelers or tourists always seek to unpack their privilege and minimize any sort of hedonic behaviors? Because I think a lot about travel as an escape. Like, I don't want to be in my routine. I want to be in a different space. I want to meet new people. And I don't want to feel too precious about it, if that makes sense. But on the other hand, I don't love the idea of just behaving really recklessly and uh, irresponsibly or or causing suffering (laughs) inadvertently through that. Uh, I think that sounds a little too intellectual, but maybe you can comment on that idea of what does it mean to travel to escape or think about that? And is that still possible to do in a responsible or ethical way? 
Mm, this is such a good question. <laughs> I think, I personally think that it is okay to view travel as a form of escape as long as you also recognize the impact that you have when you travel. I think, I basically think you can do both at the same time because the reality of life, especially in the West, is that many of us really need an escape. Um, and that's no fault of our own. We're living in a capitalist culture where many people do not have much time to themselves. And so these vacations abroad really are a moment for people to take time for themselves and relax. There is an individualistic aspect to travel. But I think balancing that with acknowledgement and effort to evaluate the way that your travels are impacting the people that make that travel possible, really. Like the whole industry is involved, like there's people across the industry involved in making that experience for you, not to mention the impact that you have on the communities that you visit. So I think if you can find a balance between like escape and also thinking about the impact that you're having and putting effort towards ensuring that impact is as positive as it can be, I think that balance exists and there's ways to do it. It just takes sort of a conscious approach, I would argue. Mm-hmm. And chances are you're not going to be super, and, and I want to hear what Katie thinks, but what you say makes me think, chances are if you're a fairly conscientious person, you're not going to travel somewhere and turn into a polar opposite. You're not going to suddenly mm-hmm. become mm-hmm. somebody who doesn't care. So, Yeah, and you know what, actually, I can give it a quick example because I think like maybe this sort of would illustrate what I mean by this. My partner and I recently went to Belize, and this was the first trip to a sunny destination we did together since the pandemic began. And so it was really important to us that we have a portion of the trip dedicated to us just relaxing together as a couple. But we wanted to mix that in with very purposeful, community-oriented travel. And so what we did is within the two weeks, we designated three days in a beachy destination. So just like in a little villa on a beach in Belize, we did make sure that the villa we stayed in was locally owned by Belizeans. So we made sure that like our dollars were going to the right place. But those three days like were less about doing touristy things and more about just sitting on the beach and relaxing together. So that was just a small portion of the trip, but we mixed it in with a more educational trip as well. So I think that's one way that people can approach it. That sounds like a good balance. Katie, what do you think? Sounds like a great balance. I mean, I think Erin articulated that so well. I have some thoughts still on the tourism travel thing, and it kind of relates to this, which is you mentioned something about how travelers, people who consider them travelers, want to stay outside of considering themselves tourists, um, but that they should sort of embrace their tourism identity in some capacity and being a tourist. And I think that's a really powerful thing to do in this point in time is to really embrace being a tourist in a country, because I think some of the mindset that comes from being a traveler is sort of being a nomad and hopping between countries and not really making like a huge impact on the countries that you visit. So you kind of are just I think of the the term traveler as sort of this like airy, flighty person who's just sort of bouncing around the world and living in their own sort of fantasy. Um, But a a tourist can make like a serious impact in both positive and negative ways. But when you do embrace being a tourist, that means you can make serious and meaningful contributions to the countries that you visit and the communities that you visit. So that means like 
Being a tourist, you can really consider where you're spending your dollars on whether it be souvenirs or hotels and all of that stuff. You can take some serious time into being like, yeah, I'm a tourist. I'm staying in a hotel, but I'm going to look into this hotel and see who owns it. Is it locally owned? That kind of thing. I want to buy souvenirs. I want to bring something home. But am I going to buy something that's probably made in China at like a little tourist stand? Or do I want to like go to a little boutique somewhere and bring home some artwork or a blanket or something like that that's locally made? So embracing your tourism identity as a tourist, going somewhere can actually be really powerful, I think. And I think the traveler mindset is people maybe want to bring them, put themselves in that category instead to not sort of seem cliche. Um, But Mm. I think we're past that now. So I think you can have a more meaningful impact by kind of embracing that. If you want to pop that in somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, I I like that because, I mean, I I love hotels. So I think I didn't realize how much I loved it until the first time I went to Montreal and I was with a friend and and she she wanted to stay in a hostel. I said, well, I don't love it. And she said, well, who cares? We're only here for a minute and then we're going to go out and do stuff. I was like, oh, okay, maybe there's something wrong with me because I really love the experience of staying at a hotel. It doesn't have to be super fancy, but I'm not going to lie. I love super fancy too. And <laughs> it's only been in the last few years that I've really embraced that and admitted it. And like part of my travel experience is truly enjoying the hotel and hospitality. And especially because of Airbnb, and I've used it a few times, it's made me appreciate the hospitality industry, but specifically the people who work in hospitality mm-hmm. so, so much. Because when you experience that great, wonderful welcome and those feelings of that your vacation or that your travel just flows and you don't really have to think too much about little things, a lot of the time that is because of great hospitality. And that can happen at all different levels. But What you're talking about reminded me of that, just how much I appreciate that and how I would go to a destination for great hospitality where I felt that I was being served by locals who who really cared and they were obviously being treated well. That's really important too. But I'm wondering, maybe you can point me in the right direction because I avoided cruise and resort vacations for a long time because I wasn't sure if that could be done in a way that was ethical or fair. I still haven't gone on a cruise vacation, but I definitely would like to try that one day. I went to a resort destination last year for the first time, and it was one of the best travel experiences I've ever had in my life. It was just amazing. Maybe you can give me some hints or tips around how would you guide people who wanted to stay in that sort of traditional resort or cruise environment, but also wanted to make the best possible impact on the local economy and put their dollars where it counts, so to speak. (laughs) Well, I will say outright, it is much harder when you go for a cruise or a resort to ensure that your dollars are going to the right people. Often cruise ships like cruise lines and resorts are owned by foreign entities. So that money ends up in foreign hands versus the hands of people that actually work in that country or are local to that country. But that said, like I also fully understand why people choose this mode of travel. It goes back to what you were saying about escape. Um, For a lot of people, they don't want to go through the effort of planning an entire trip because that is a lot of effort that goes into that. 
And if you just need a good vacation, it is very easy to just book a resort or a cruise. So I do fully understand why people opt for that. I think like the best way to approach it, if that's the style of travel that you're looking to do, is to first research like who owns the resort or the cruise line that you're traveling with. I mean, cruises like are a whole other can of worms because they have a horrible impact on our oceans. Mm. So maybe mm-hmm. research a bit about that before you book a cruise. Once you start researching that, it's it's really um, disheartening. So it might turn mm-hmm. you off. It turned me off of cruises once I started learning about what they're yeah. doing to our oceans. Um, but when it comes to resorts, you can research to see like who owns this resort, who do they hire, and just look into the background and also look at like Are they transparent about their practices, about their labor practices, about their sustainability practices? But what I would actually say, rather than a resort, you can work with a travel agent to put together a resort-style experience without actually going to a resort. So for example, Puerto Vallarta in Mexico is a really popular resort destination, but you don't need to stay on a resort to enjoy Puerto Vallarta. You can go and stay in a locally owned villa eat in local restaurants the entire time, and still have the same beach access that you would have on a resort. So you can kind of build yourself the resort experience on a more like, I don't know how to describe it. You can just sort of like build it yourself and make sure that you're working with local vendors versus a corporate-owned resort. And for the most part, I don't know, I'm not a big resort person myself, so I can't say for sure that it's the same experience, but it would be a very similar experience. Um, to approach it that way. One thing would be severely lacking, which I think is something that most people would have to come to terms with, which is you're likely not going to find an open bar anywhere else other than a resort and a cruise. (laughs) So if you're traveling for the open bar, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) Maybe those are your only options that you should go for. But I'll also say like we we were recently having this discussion too around these types of choices. And Ultimately, like Aaron said, some people only have so much vacation time. Realistically, their travel impact isn't actually making a giant impact on the world. And really, there has to be systemic change in order to change things. So cruise lines could likely have more regulation around them. Resorts could have more regulation around them within those countries. And that's not necessarily something that a tourist can impact. Aaron and I had this discussion recently about, you know, if enough people make the choice not to do something, maybe, and the demand is not there, we can, you know, tank an entire industry. But unfortunately, that's not really the case uh, these days so much anymore. So I think any traveler these days is not likely traveling to the extent that Kylie Jenner is traveling from, you know, L.A. to San Francisco um, and things like that, and and doing the private jets that are putting a ton of amount of emissions into the air. So if you can do your research before you book your trip, I think that's the most meaningful thing that you can do because having the knowledge and the context around a place that you're traveling will make the biggest impact on the choices that you'd make. Just because, you know, I think every human has a bit of empathy within them. And if you understand the story and the context around the land you're visiting and the businesses that are there, then I think you'll automatically want to make better choices. Um, I also have a thought on your love of luxury things, because I will say I think a lot of local, locally owned hotels and businesses and things like that 
are a little bit pricier. And that's because they, you know, are maybe a small business or something like that. And there's no shame in booking something that's more expensive. I think there is a lot of opinions in the travel space around people who spend a lot of money and have really bougie trips. Um, It takes a lot of money and a lot of privilege to be able to do that. But if this is like a once in a lifetime thing for you, or maybe a once every few years thing for you, like definitely spend the money on something that is locally owned and will give you all the hospitality that you've ever thought about um, and could ever crave when you go somewhere because you'll likely have a higher impact at something that's pricier rather than going for like a budget hotel or a budget experience that is owned by, you know, some big corporate entity. Mm-hmm. And I love your point about the open bar. Could we just vote mm-hmm. to have unlimited guacamole maybe instead of the open bar? <laughs> I think that might be easier to come by, to be honest, at other places. Exactly. <laughs> I would I would take that. <laughs> I would be so bloated. Oh, my gosh. that's such a great point though um i like i said i i I just had my first destination experience last year it's not something that i do frequently but i like the idea of making it more special and and maybe not doing it frequently i'm not someone who's always looking at like the bottom lowest price possible vacation because I actually, it's ironic. It's because I don't have a lot of vacation time. So I want it mm-hmm. to count and I want it to be something that I have great memories from. But that leads me to another topic that I heard you raise in your podcast. And I was really intrigued by this, this idea of catfishing and catfishing tourism and especially on social media and videos or images. And I think, Erin, you mentioned it. And my understanding was this means sort of misleading marketing or misleading images or videos of a destination that make people want to go somewhere. But when they get there, that's not the reality. Am I right in that understanding? Maybe you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, this is something I see all the time online. And it's just, you know, It's just like the reality of social media. A lot of social media (laughs) is not real life. I think all of us know this now. It's a highlight reel. But especially like with videography and photography, like being as advanced as it is, it's really easy to manipulate images. Um, So there's this famous image that everyone knows of this temple in Bali where people are standing like between these two pillars and their reflection is on the ground and it looks like the reflection is coming off of water. But if you look into this place, it actually turns out that people line up to take this photo and then locals there hold up a mirror to create the illusion. And this is just (laughs) such a good good example. (laughs) And then and there's nothing wrong with that experience. Like I fully support anyone who wants to go and get that photo. It's a gorgeous photo. I think the difference is like then you're going there for the photo. It's not so much to see the temple. Yeah. I support any local who wants to make that bag too. Like, yes, go make and get that it bag off mirror. of that. Yeah. <laughs> and the photography skills are amazing. I've seen people's iPhone photos of this place. Incredible work. Um, <laughs> but I think it just boils down to like taking things at face value when you come across them on social media, especially when destinations are trending on social media. I think it's important to just do a bit of research outside of the app that you're on outside of Instagram, outside of TikTok. Um, I love watching documentaries about places or reading books about places. I think these are good ways 
to get exposure to like different angles about a place. Um, like I don't think you should choose to travel to a place just because you saw a couple beautiful photos of it. You should probably do a bit more research. And that's the danger of social media, I think. It's just, it's very visually focused and that's enticing to people and people want to go to beautiful places. So I understand why. But yeah, it leads to destinations becoming trends in a way Mm -hmm. when I think they're much more than a trend at the end of the day. Has that been your experience as well, Katie? You're noticing that these sort of iconic photos lead to lineups basically and maybe people just going in quickly, getting a photo and it becomes like a checklist destination. Yeah, I actually haven't personally experienced that. I know Aaron likely has multiple, multiple times, <laughs> uh, just because I just haven't traveled as much as Aaron. Um, and usually I find that like, I mean, I haven't traveled since that, haven't traveled to a lot of significantly touristy destinations since I was a kid. But I think right now where my mindset is at is choosing sort of not like we we talk about second second city tourism a lot on our show and that is like the act of choosing a different city other than like the most popular one in whatever country you're going to so right now that's sort of where my head is at in terms of where what i choose for my travel choices um so i'm thinking about a trip to japan in a couple of years and i would love to visit tokyo for sure but i'm already sort of scoping out areas around the entire country that would be more meaningful or make a big uh, make another impact on me like that's the thing there's alternatives to like all the amazing things so sure go and see your tourist destination but don't spend all of your time there maybe go and contribute to other cities and and villages and stuff around the whole country so I actually haven't experienced that much and I do worry that places going viral online could lead to something like this Um, Social media has made like a huge impact on the travel industry, we know Mm. for sure. So Mm -hmm. that's the only thing is like, I I don't know where I'm going with this sentence, but social media can be dangerous. That kind of makes me question, maybe we have to wait for places to become untrendy and then they become good again. I don't know if that's actually (laughs) true. Maybe they get sort of washed up. But can you think of any examples of destinations that were once super popular and then today they're really maybe just a little bit popular not so popular and they're amazing destinations Ooh, let me think about this all like what's coming to mind first are destinations that like for example afghanistan actually used to be a very popular travel destination but things changed there obviously because of the political situation but i'm trying to think of destinations that have maybe fallen out of popularity after a quick rise. And I actually can't think of any. I think it's really hard to come back. Like once they're on the radar of like average tourists, like I don't think they really fall off it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One thing we talk about a lot is over tourism. And I think over tourism can really have just a long lasting impact for a long, long time. So once a place has become a a trendy place, um, and experiences over tourism where, you know, there's just so many people coming to that place and the locals just can't keep up with it. And, you know, a, the locals are disturbed. Their own way of life can't continue the way it used to. Usually that has like a pretty long lasting impact just in terms of things degrading over time, locals being forced out, gentrification, all sorts of things like that. So I think realistically, when some place becomes trendy and over tourism happens, I don't know if there's really 
coming back from it, that can happen quickly. I think it would take maybe decades for a country to recover from something like that. Well, the only way it can come back for it, because at that point, it's sort of like a snowball effect where they no longer need to market this destination. It's known by people. People are telling other people about it. It's really hard to pause the marketing campaign because you've basically got an organic marketing campaign for Mm -hmm. that destination now. I think the only way it can be intervened with is with like government policy and intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, and some places do do that. Like Venice, Italy is is putting in all sorts of legislation to try to reduce the amount of tourists that arrive, especially during peak season. But I don't think that changes the fact that it will still always be a place that people want to go. Yeah, I remember the photos from COVID of dolphins swimming in the canals in Venice. And I thought now is the time when I would mm-hmm. really want to see it because it was so <laughs> tranquil looking and beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, But actually, I want to pivot to a related topic, which is specifically Aaron's talked a little bit about visiting your ancestral country and this idea of coming home. And you've talked a little bit about Amsterdam. I mean, it's one of the most famous tourist destinations, one of these places that it's been labeled as suffering from over-tourism. And I can certainly speak to that when I went there back in 2019 Both of my parents are from the Netherlands, so it was a bit of a return home for me. But I really loved actually going to The Hague and Utrecht, which is near where my mother was born. And you mentioned the excitement or the enjoyment of visiting these other cities, partly because they're not such hot spots of tourism. So maybe you can talk a little bit, Erin, about that experience of visiting what might be considered home, part of your ancestral um, heritage, and sort of that sense of witnessing really, really heavy tourism and and these these big crowds and and obviously a lot of excitement around that, but then having other moments that are very much deep within resonating within you as, oh, this is so familiar. You know, for example, when I visited, the Netherlands people would come up and speak to me in Dutch because I look Dutch and I felt mm-hmm. so embarrassed because this happens to me too. I just nod. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I felt like I failed. I felt like I failed them, but I just maybe speak speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I'll actually start with commenting on the over-tourism bit because obviously I love Amsterdam. I have lived in the Netherlands. I've spent lots of time in Amsterdam. It is an incredible city that I love with all my heart. But yes, they are very much suffering from over-tourism. It was actually predicted that the city is expecting to see up to 42 million tourists a year by 2030, which is wild because that is 50 times the current population of the Netherlands. (laughs) And interestingly, in response to this tourism forecast, the Dutch Tourism Board published a report a couple years ago called Perspective 2030. And in it, they announced that tourism efforts in the Netherlands would be shifting from destination promotion to destination management. So they're going to be shifting the focus of tourism to be on encouraging tourists to look beyond Amsterdam and beyond the overcrowded attractions in Amsterdam and other parts of the Netherlands. Um, So it's very much this, what you're saying, this encouragement to go to places that tourists like historically haven't gone to very much. Um, For example, I lived in Groningen for a couple months, which is up in the north. And Mm -hmm. I don't know a single person who's been there because it's just not a place that tourists tend to go because it's a region of the Netherlands that hasn't really been promoted as a tourist destination. 
um, for non-Europeans. But yeah, to speak a little bit about the heritage aspect, I'm sure you understand growing up with two Dutch parents. I grew up in a very Dutch household as well. So I grew up with Dutch foods. My mom would get deliveries from the Dutch store in Ottawa every week. My mom spoke Dutch in the house. I heard Dutch from my grandparents. And we had lots of family in the Netherlands that we were very close with, even though we basically never saw them. I was essentially pen pals with my Dutch cousins my whole childhood. And I'll never forget, we would mail to each other videotapes of like the kids and like our lives. And my cousin over in the Netherlands, she played the violin and she was a bit older than me. So cool. And receiving that video of her playing violin is what inspired me to play violin. So there were a lot of connections between me and my Dutch family. So when I went to the Netherlands, which was the first time I got on a plane, I was 16. And my mom put me on the plane by myself and I flew over and went to Eindhoven, which is where my family that I was staying with was going to be. It was like a really intense experience for me because there was a strong sense of familiarity in the Netherlands. And having traveled to many more places now, I can say like you don't feel that same familiarity in other places. It was just that I recognized brands, I recognized foods, I recognized the language. I knew enough of the language to sit in a room and hear the Dutch and like have a sense of what was being talked about. So it was an interesting experience because it was like very familiar, but it was also foreign at the same time. And it's really interesting to navigate that like from an identity perspective, because I fully identify as Canadian. I was raised Mm -hmm. Canadian, but Dutchness factors into my identity. But being in the Netherlands really made me realize I'm not Dutch. I'm not. (laughs) I just have the heritage and I, I have a connection to that culture, but I can't claim that culture for myself because I was raised here and I'm Canadian. But yeah, I think this is a very common Canadian experience as well, because so many of us living here in Canada have heritage coming from Europe and other regions of the world. What you say about feeling Canadian or identifying yourself as Canadian. I never feel more Canadian than when I'm outside the country. There's mm-hmm. all these little interactions. And of course, you've mentioned the Dutch directness. And <laughs> I'm so, uh, so Canadian in the sense of, you know, making niceties and, and, and apologies. And it was just a real wake-up call that, okay, I'm definitely Canadian. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'd love to hear from you, Katie, as well. Have you gone, had that experience of of traveling somewhere and feeling your Canadian or North American identity reinforced? (laughs) Uh, I mean, the most prominent thing that comes to mind is it's you're always so blatantly Canadian when somebody asks you in another country where you're from and you say Canada and they like are so excited to talk to you and find out you're not (laughs) from the U.S. And then you're like, okay, yeah, like I'm... There's like an association attached with me and I have like no other association for me. I mean, my mom is she's Swiss German and my dad's family has just been in North America for so long. So my identity is very, very Canadian. And, you know, I have a Canadian podcasting newsletter. Like I clearly consider myself part of this country. But what's interesting for me is that my opa moved here in uh, during the Second World War. And he grew, he built a home in Canada that was very Swiss inspired. It looked like a little Swiss chalet and not the restaurant. And then um, I would go and my mom would speak to, uh, Swiss German to him all of the time. 
uh, on the phone. I would go over to his house and I would have it just felt like I was in Switzerland and I've been there. But when I was very, very young um, and like Aaron, like I just so relate to all of the things of having just Swiss German things around me all of the time and having those traditions that I had as a young kid. And then my uncle moved to Denmark a long time ago. So he kind of adopted this Danish identity, even though he is my my mom's brother. And so I went to go visit him in Denmark when I was 12. And I felt so at home in the strangest way because I was like, I am not Danish whatsoever. But my uncle has really adopted this identity and has been doing all these Swiss German traditions with his kids and his wife that it was just so strange. I felt like I was in Switzerland, but I wasn't. Um, and like, <laughs> and now I've sort of been like, am I Danish? I'm not Danish, but I like feel <laughs> such a connection to that country now, too, because my cousins there have grown up and they are always messaging me on Instagram and updating me on their lives like they're in their early 20s, late teens. So I just feel such a connection to Danish culture now that I'm just like, I need to go because I feel like I would be at home. So it's a very strange feeling because I know I'm not connected to it, but my family is there and that's why I do. So it's very strange. Interesting too, though, because it gives you another sense of what it's like to be an immigrant outside of Canada because you're seeing two cultures kind of blended. That's so neat. Yes. Yeah. My uncle was actually left Canada when he was 18 and moved to Switzerland and then met his wife, who was Danish, and then moved to Denmark. So he's also just a very Canadian guy, but he just looks so European. I don't know how to how to <laughs> describe it, but he's just so <laughs> chic, but like very relaxed Canadian. I don't know how to describe it. Sounds great. <laughs> oh, that's so neat. Maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the trends and challenges you see coming up. Will there be the same resurgence in travel and tourism this year that there was last year, ostensibly because of the COVID sort of recovery? Or do you see new trends coming up and maybe people being more choosy or thoughtful about travel because of inflation and other reasons? Yeah, I mean, this is... This is a hard question because it's really hard to predict where things will go. Um, I think what I see a lot of people saying is that the quote-unquote golden age of travel has passed. Um, Many people argue that the 2010s and yeah, just the 2010s were the golden age of travel. And it's partly because travel changed significantly during that time, um, mainly because of technology The internet became a tool for researching and booking travel far more easily. Digital platforms became a place where people found inspiration to travel. Um, It was also an interesting decade because we saw the rise of the sharing economy. So like Airbnb and Uber, especially at the start, did make travel far more accessible to people. We also saw the rise of low-cost air carriers, which made travel more accessible. We also saw the rise of influencers, which started contributing to travel marketing, and then at the same time, social media turned travel into a sort of social currency for some people. There was much more like interest in travel because people saw it as like a social currency in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you mentioned, I think now the biggest challenges tourism is facing are issues around sustainability and climate change for sure, but also pandemic recovery. 
I mean, the reality is we are still in a pandemic. We're not really even in the recovery yet. There are many countries that are still working through different restrictions based on how the pandemic is evolving. And I think it's important that people are cognizant of that. But also, economically, like we're in a tough economic time right now. Like people are saying we're potentially going into a recession. This means that many people don't have the funds to travel anymore. And travel is becoming more expensive. And this is in part because of the the climate crisis. The Mm -hmm. climate crisis is going to impact how we travel and the cost of travel. So I actually think in the coming years, like if I were to predict, and this is a prediction, don't hold me to this, but I do think travel is going to become less accessible in the coming years, um, which is unfortunate because I think the goal ultimately is for it to be accessible to everyone. I think we're making gains in terms of like accessibility in general, like in, in issues like wheelchairs rolling onto planes, like we are seeing progress in those areas. When I say accessibility, I mean more from a financial sense. Um, I don't know that it's going to be as cost effective for people to travel on a broad scale in the future. Yeah. And I mean, we're already seeing that right now. I'm hearing from lots of people that travel just isn't in the budget anymore. We've sort of passed that golden age where it was like very financially accessible for people. Do you think the solution is traveling closer to home? Although, and here, Katie, maybe you want to weigh in. Um, You've done some great coverage of indigeneity and the Canadian tourist industry having a chance to explore that within our own country as Canadians, Um, but also that Canada is not the most accessible or affordable country to travel in as Canadians even. Uh, Maybe you want to comment on that, because I think that's something that stands out in your conversations on the podcast. Mm -hmm. I mean, you went exactly where my brain went to. If if Canada and the U.S. both have goals of hitting net zero by 2050, I mean, flights are kind of out of the question at that point. Like there has to be some serious um, regulation around the airline industry. And I think that's destined to happen if the goal remains. So I think we can kind of anticipate more domestic tourism happening. And I think we saw that sort of starting to come to fruition because of the pandemic, because people couldn't travel anywhere. A lot of people were considering domestic travel and how they could get around. And that means that there's a lot, especially in Canada. I mean, we talk about Canada a lot because it's just where we live. Um, And we have more context here, but there's a lot of infrastructure change that needs to happen to allow people to travel around Canada specifically and explore it. One of the things that we've talked about on our podcast is just how difficult Canada is to get around and explore because it's A, either too expensive or B, takes us so long to get anywhere. So there's really a balance that needs to be fixed and created there by, I don't know who the Canadian government people who care about traveling. I don't know who's going to make it. Investment. There needs to be investment. Yeah. (laughs) Especially like, and we've talked about this on the show, like investment in light rail. The investment is just not there. They're saying they're going to do it. High speed rail. Yeah. Yeah. Getting somewhere. Like I was, I was joking on our podcast recently about how I was looking at traveling around uh, Japan and how you could get from one side of the island in about five hours via their high speed rail. Um, And that's the equivalent of getting from Toronto to Halifax in five hours. Like, imagine. Imagine right now that's a two day trip or longer. And so we just, you know, there's not enough investment in our in our rail lines. And that's leading to when you talk about Indigenous tourism. I think a lot of Canadians would love to support Indigenous communities and their tourism initiatives. 
We were just talking to Keith Henry from the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada, who was talking to us about how in, I think it was the Northwest Territories, there's a lot of Indigenous tourism activities. But because flights have been limited by Air Canada now, there aren't any tourists coming to those communities as much anymore. So how are we going to get tourists up there to support those initiatives and those those excursions that exist? So it's either we need something, some way to get people there. And I don't think highways are the solution because, again, if we want to hit carbon, you know, zero emissions by 2050, you know, cars aren't the solution either. So there's just a lot of investment that needs to be made in terms of supporting domestic tourism, because I think that's where we're headed first and foremost over the next few years is really people are going to want to explore closer to home because nobody's going to want to stay at home all the time. And in their own communities, people need to get out and, you know, escape. So we need to make Canada more accessible to explore. And I think every country is going to have to think about that. Yeah. I'll just add to this because I think this this connects to what I was saying as well about like the accessibility of travel from a financial perspective. These investments need to happen, but then those those new modes of travel also need to be financially accessible. Mm-hmm. And we're already seeing rumblings of this being a problem because in France, they've outlawed short haul flights that'll be mm-hmm. um, started in the coming years. I think it's if a flight is under an hour, they're no longer allowed to run domestically in France. Which seems like a great initiative. And I like, I think it's a great initiative. Like, yes, let's cancel the short haul flights. They're terrible for our environment. But lots of people are saying the problem here is that those flights were the accessible way to get around. They were much cheaper than taking Mm -hmm. France's train system. The train system, I asked a friend of mine who was living in France, she said it's generally twice as expensive to go by train as it is by flight. And that's what I mean when I say like it will limit the amount that people can travel potentially in the future because travel will just become more expensive as we move towards these more sustainable models, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. It's rough in Canada, too, because Canada just generally is very expensive to travel. Mm -hmm. I mean, to keep it on a positive note in some capacity, because I know we're going to wrap it up soon. I I don't want to end it on a total bummer, but... Uh, I mean, the a recent partnership with Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada and Parks Canada, they have a new three-year, con- uh, renewed three-year contract to work together on Parks Canada around the whole country. And I think that's really exciting because it shows that there is investment going into a lot of domestic tourism, which, you know, in Canada, frankly, it's all camping. But it's going to be really exciting because I think we're going to see a lot more Indigenous representation across the country, a lot more investment dollars. So we'll see what that means for the next three years, but it is encouraging to see. So I'm excited about that. Well, that is definitely ending on a high note. Yeah. (laughs) I'll plug a little something for Canadian travelers too. Um, Park bus, if you don't have a car, if you're a city dweller like me and you only ride a bike, turn to Park bus. It's really great. It's a um, service that connects people living in cities with the great outdoors. So you can book a bus for a really reasonable price to take you to various parks. I'm speaking about experience here in Toronto, going to parks around Ontario. But I know the service exists in the West Coast as well, and they're expanding throughout Canada. So if that's a barrier for you, look into Park Bus because it's a really accessible way to get yourself into our parks and back. And some of them actually, like, I know they run the park bus from Toronto to Algonquin Park, and you can take it up one day and take it back a couple of days later. 
So you can even bring your camping equipment with you, hop on the bus, go to Algonquin, and then come back a couple days later. So I always like to plug that just because I know there's lots of people listening who might not have access to a car. Mm -hmm. Good to know. Yeah, that is, I didn't realize that. That's great. Um, It's been so great having you on the podcast. I can't help but think I should have you on again to ask you even more because there's just even more to talk about. Well, thanks again. It was really wonderful to have you here today. Thanks for having us. This has been really fun. Super fun. And yeah, there's so much more to talk about. So we're always happy to continue the conversation. Yeah. Can I just say, like, we guest on podcasts pretty often and your questions are like some of the most thoughtful questions that people have ever asked. So I really Mm -hmm. appreciate that. This has Mm -hmm. been really awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I listened to you today for five hours because I wanted to really be into it. Oh my God. Go take a nice warm bath. I can't believe you subjected yourself to that. Not at all. If you love access ideas, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review us on Podchaser via the link in our show notes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about the podcast too. Until next time, thanks for listening to Access Ideas.